Hello and welcome to episode 244 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined once again, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Sorry I kind of ghosted you last week, but I was on vacation, not even accessible to you. (laughs) That must mean it's a very good vacation. How are you enjoying your time on the other side of the planet? It's very far away, but very good. Getting very lucky with the weather in Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, and now here in Taipei and Kaohsiung, actually down in the south, so all over Taiwan. It's been fun, to say the least. So you obviously flew there. I don't think you I did. rode a boat. I did boat. not take a cross-world cruise ship. That would be interesting. That would be fun, fun, yeah. but definitely a change of pace. So anything stand out on this trip so far? As far as flights and things go? I guess it got off to a bit of an interesting start. Flew with United from Newark to Tokyo Haneda. My first time actually flying to Haneda. It was a very nice experience, but it was an odd start with United. It was a morning flight, 9.45 a.m. at 777-200ER out of Newark. It was supposed to be operated by one of the Pratt & Whitney aircraft, and then something happened, and we ended up on one of the GE-powered aircraft, which I thought was a nice little win. And the crew of the flight was really, really just happy, welcoming, just generally awesome. And I'm up in the flight deck while they've wrapped up their pre-flight checks and everything, and they're just inviting people into the flight deck to come in, sit down, take some pictures. And I did that, and they're like, okay, we're all ready to go. We're about to button up everything. It's great. Head back to your seat, and we'll be out of here shortly. And as I'm walking out of the cockpit, literally one foot out, I get a text message on my phone saying, we're sorry, but due to a maintenance delay, your flight is delayed by 30 minutes, and you'll get an update in 30 minutes. I'm like, well, that's odd, because the pilots in the flight deck didn't seem to have any clue about that about five seconds ago. So that was a bit odd, but what turned out to happen was that the actual captain of the aircraft, who was not on the flight deck at the time, was doing a walk around of the pre-flight walk around of the aircraft and happened to notice that the aircraft on most likely its inbound flight, its prior inbound flight, probably about eight hours prior, appeared to have a bird strike that went unnoticed. And there was actually some damage to the right-hand side engine that needed, unfortunately, about two hours and 45 minutes worth of maintenance, inspections, and repairs, and paperwork, and all that. And thankfully, we were on our way a bit late, a bit touch and go. They were letting people off the plane and rescheduling some people and busted connections. But thankfully, we made it with only a a couple hours delay since we didn't have a connection or anything. But that whole series of events was just, it was a bit funny timing. Now, here's the question. Did you show the pilots that were on the flight deck the text? I was one foot out the door already. (laughs) And so I wasn't in there with them, but that would have been very funny. Like, hey, guys, did you know the flight's delayed? Like, we're delayed. Did did you want to tell me about that part? Because four seconds ago, you told me we're we're all good and ready to go. So something clearly has changed. But I do want to give the United flight and cabin crew a shout out because through the entire time, they were extremely forthcoming really just happy providing updates. And you could tell they obviously did not want to be in that situation either, but it makes all the difference in a two hour, 45 minute delay when you have a happy, engaged, communicative crew, as opposed to one that's maybe just hiding out in the flight deck or the galley and really not giving you updates. So it really made the time go by quicker because they were inviting people up to the flight deck and giving updates. It was just 
a good way to go through a, a nearly three hour delay, I guess, which is a weird thing to say, but it could have been. No, it's not weird at all. I mean, that to me as a passenger makes all the difference. And we've talked about this before where the two of us often suffer from a detriment of information where where we it's, know it's how to find out. Exactly, exactly. Where we know how to find out what's actually happening. And therefore, sometimes we've made decisions based on that knowledge that haven't worked out for us operationally. But when you don't have that information, or or even if you're just sitting there and there's nothing you can really do about it, I mean, what are you going to get out and you know grab a wrench and go help? I mean, it makes all the difference in the world to have a crew or gate agents or whatever staff there is that is being open and communicating honestly, even if the news isn't good. I mean, but just, just knowing what it is. The thing that bothers me so much is that rolling 30 minute delay. And that's exactly what we had. It was exactly a rolling 30 minute delay every 30 minutes on the dot. Like, I get it. That's your standard procedure. It's, you know, we don't know how long it's going to take, so we'll just keep you posted every 30 minutes. But I feel like at the outset, you kind of know, maybe, like, we're going to take a look at things. And then once they've taken a look at things, they probably know about how long this thing will take. And I feel like that would make all the difference in the world if airlines would just say, okay, instead of giving you an update every 30 minutes, here's the thing. This is what's going to happen. We're going to try and fix this thing. It usually takes about 90 minutes. Because that way, if a person who has a tight connection, they can start planning for that. Not, oh, am I going to make my connection? Am I not going to make my connection? Because I get an update every 30 minutes. Yeah. And that's what happened here where United, I guess, in the operations center coming from maintenance, they were saying, Every 30 minutes, we're fixing something, something, we'll provide an update in 30 minutes. But the actual information on board coming from the captain of the flight, who was extremely involved in this whole situation, was much more telling, saying, hey, this is the problem, maintenance is here, they're working on it, they say it's about 30 minutes, and towards, you know, hour two plus, you, you could tell he was getting a bit antsy. And he was telling us, well, the maintenance He's people- He's like, I know quite, it's not 30 minutes. They're not being quite forthright with us on an estimated time, but they say about 30 minutes. So sit tight. If your connections are close, they'll be worked on when we get to Tokyo. But he put on his high-vis vest. He went, he got the jet bridge back attached to the aircraft and he went out there and had some words with them. And sure enough, we were on our way. But it was really a situation which could have been a lot worse. But it was funny during one of the many hours we were on board, I got to chatting with, I think, every crew member on board the aircraft, and we were discussing what was going on. He goes to me, how much do you know about aircraft when I asked what was going on? And I said, hit me with whatever you got, and I'll, and I'll figure it enough out. Enough to be dangerous. Exactly. Enough to know what I'm talking about. And, and we went into the uh, probably about a 10-minute conversation about what exactly went wrong, that there was some damage to possibly one of the fan blades and the fan hub and all this and that. And it was mostly just paperwork. And can we defer what happened or do we need to scrap the flight and get a new plane? It was just really, really nice. And we swapped uh, pictures and, and travel stories with a lot of the crew. It was just kind of a fun way to spend almost three hours in Newark. I mean, if we're going to be at Newark locked in an aluminum tube, we might as well make it a good time. Yes. And we were not locked. They were letting us out, but there was really nowhere to go. Anytime <laughs> yeah. I went to a kiosk or looked at my phone for alternative options, it said, oh, no, you're out of luck, sucker. Get back on board. 
This isn't like trying to get to Los Angeles. Well, there was another flight to Tokyo, to Narita, actually, that left about an hour after ours. And the crew was quite frank. They said, if you need to get to Tokyo today, go over to that gate and get on that flight. And I didn't. I probably should have because we came close to canceling. But they were very telling. They said, if you need to get there, get off this plane now, basically. Because they they weren't quite sure it would be a good day for us. I mean, even that's good information to have. So yeah, yeah, good on United. Yeah, Yeah. my whole thing about the 30-minute delay was it was not a knock on United at all because all They all do it. It's just... Did they have a meeting at some point? Is this in the Chicago conventions? We should go back and look. Is this one, is this like the 16th freedom of the air? Only give updates in 30-minute increments. That's right. And then beyond that, we flew from Osaka over to Taipei, and I flew a new airline for myself, Starbucks. Mm. And that was on an A330neo, I think a, a one-and-a-half-year-old aircraft. And Starbucks is an interesting brand, let's say. Go on. Well, it's a new airline. They started up, I think, in 2020, which is really, really terrible. Terrible timing. timing. Good timing. Terrible timing. But they seem to have not really cut back on any of their service standards. I booked business class using some miles on Alaska Airlines for a rate that was the same as economy. So score one for for me there. Yeah, I love this industry sometimes. But Starbucks was strange. It was like, you can clearly tell they aspire to be like a rocket ship company or like some sort of space cruise agency. But right now, all they can muster up is like an Airbus A330 and 350. But (laughs) one day, they'll get the space. Like that's that's their whole theme is like the safety video and all their theming is like space age and space travel. But right now, they'll get you in and out of Taipei and that's as much as they'll do. I mean, to be fair, their call sign is Starwalker. It's pretty great. I, I really, so, really enjoyed my time on Starwalks. I hope we see them in New York. I know they're on the West Coast now, but a long haul flight to New York would be a welcome addition. I mean, what fantastic timing. Founded in 2018, first flight, January 23rd, 2020. I don't think they could have timed it worse. No. Uh, But it's good to see that they made it through. And, you know, by all accounts, yours included, they run a great airline. Yeah, it was pretty great. We'll see what's in store for me tomorrow on my way back to New York, flying EVA Air or EVA Air back to New York in economy the long way. So that's going to be a lovely. 15, 16 hour jaunt on, on that flight. Haven't found a way out of economy for this one. So very much not quite I mean, looking forward to that one. It's a triple seven, right? It is. Yes. So what you need is a ULD and a water bottle. You'll be fine. Yeah. The only saving grace could possibly be if they pull out one of the Hello Kitty aircraft, mm. which did make the run to JFK yesterday. So maybe it's on its way back to Taipei now. Maybe maybe some magic can maybe happen. You've got a chance. One of the Hello Kitty jets. Besides Jason wandering around Asia, we've got a fantastic show today because the bulk of the show is our interview with Captain Olaf Lindstrom, who's the fleet chief pilot at North Atlantic Airways and happens to be the first person to captain a 787 flight down to Antarctica. Now, we covered this a little bit the week that it happened. And then we said, wait a second, we 
we've got some questions about how you actually fly down there because we've talked with Sven Lidstrom at the Norwegian Polar Institute about how they run the airport. And if you haven't listened to that episode, we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's, a, I think, a great companion episode to learn about how they operate a fully functioning airport in Antarctica that can support a 787. But in our conversation with Olav Lindstrom at Norse, we got answers to the questions that we've kind of had all along, not just about the 787, but all aircraft that fly internationally from wherever they start down to Cape Town and then Cape Town down to Antarctica. So I thought that this conversation was I could have kept talking for days, but we cut it down to what you're going to hear next. So we'll be right back with Olav Lindstrom from Norse. Stay with us. Welcome back. We are now joined by Olaf Lindstrom, who is the fleet chief pilot of Norse Atlantic Airways. We've talked about Norse Atlantic in the past for their low-cost model and being a successful low-cost, long-haul fleet, but this is a very different conversation. Olav is the captain who commanded the flight from Cape Town to Troll Station in Antarctica. We've talked in the past with Sven Lidstrom from the Norwegian Polar Institute about how they run the airport there, but now we get to hear the opposite perspective or the incoming perspective, I guess we should say, about how you operate an aircraft there. So, Olav, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So, what I'm really keen to learn about, and we've had some questions from listeners as well, is beyond the ice runway, what makes operating an aircraft to Antarctica, what makes that flight unique? And I know we can break down some of the differences between a normal flight and an operating this. So, I guess, do we start with the flight plan? Is that a good place to start? Or you tell me where we should start. I think we can start even earlier than that. So sure. we're flying the first 787 to Antarctica and we're landing, as far as I know, the first time a 787 on an ice runway. So in the initial stage of the planning, we just wanted to make sure, of course, that an ice runway can handle a 787. We suspected that the answer was yes, because there's been a lot of studies in the past on uh, bearing strength of glacier ice. That glacier is 700 meters thick, and the elevation is 4,000 feet. So that sort of gives an idea of how thick that glacier is. And unlike sea ice, for example, this is very strong. So we did a study on that, and we came to the conclusion that we had a safety margin of maybe 10 to 20 times the required strength. Oh, wow. And then, of course, other things like braking action. Other airlines have been flying there in the past. So again, we suspected that it should be no problem. But that's also something that we studied carefully, of course. Now, it is clearly different from flying from, say, Oslo to JFK, because you're flying into a part of the world where there's very little support. So in terms of fire rescue, for example, or if we back up even further in terms of search and rescue on the way there, if we have had an issue on the way from Cape Town, this is a five and a half hour flight. So you're flying in a part of the world where there is very little support. and that is something that we also ran numerous risk assessments on. And for the fire rescue at the station, they had previously, of course, serviced smaller aircraft. So we had to also study that carefully that the equipment and the training they had was sufficient for an airplane of our size. And then it's an ETOPS flight. So it's at the same time as it's very, very complex and very different, it's also very similar. 
So we've planned a Zenitops flight, and we have in North Atlantic Norway, we have 180-minute ETOPS. And these rings, they are 1,202 nautical miles, and the distance between Cape Town and Troll is approximately double that. I think we had a, they overlapped by about 70 miles. So <laughs> not not a, a huge just, margin. No, not a huge margin, but still plenty enough for that. So there is already a little bit of margin built into those circles as well. But the distances are quite crazy. So if you were to flip this to perhaps some listeners are more used to the Northern Hemisphere, it is similar to, imagine you have a polar station on the North Pole and it's up there by uh, Svalbard and, and not in most Norway, it would be as if we serviced it from the northern coast of Africa. So it's like taking off from, say, Tunisia and flying towards the North Pole. Those are the sort of distances that we're talking about here. So what are the alternate airfields when you're flying Cape Town to Troll? Because there's, there's nothing in between the two. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the alternates are Cape Town and Troll on the flight plan. We filed that flight plan as an ETOPS flight plan with Cape Town being the alternate on one side and Troll being the alternate on the other side. Now, we do check the weather at some of the other airfields that are down in Antarctica, but they are not really suitable for us. They would be just worst case scenario that we could maybe divert to there. But we can get back to that a little bit onwards that the, the weather forecasting is extremely important for this sort of operation. When we fly Oslo to JFK, I mean, 99% of the time, the flight can depart. It's rarely an issue with weather unless you have an ice storm or a hurricane. But about 50% of all the flights that depart from Cape Town to service the various stations in Antarctica, they are delayed because of weather. And we had a delay as well, about 15 hours due to weather. Right, right. I mean, that's fascinating to me that the alternates can be, I mean, Obviously, you can always turn back if you need to. But when we talked with Sven Listen from Norwegian Polar Institute about the weather forecasting on their part, because I know that they you know, really only operate in fair weather conditions. Yeah. What does that look like from the flight planning side? Because I know they're taking readings from various stations around Antarctica, as well as their own. So is that information coming to you directly? Or is that pulled from just kind of your normal flight planning facilities? With help from the Polar Institute, we use a service provider, a weather forecast provider named Storm Geo, and they provided us with weather briefings over Teams. So it was over a video call starting 10 days prior to the flight and then five days prior and then just in the hours prior to the flight. And they gave us the whole sort of lowdown on all the details on that weather. Because there are such high requirements for the weather, you really do not want to depart Cape Town if the weather looks like it's questionable or even if there's any sort of doubt, then it's much better to delay the flight and wait for better weather. So I want to come back to the flight plan for a second. How many waypoints are there? Because we've seen, let's kind of keep with the Oslo JFK flight. There's, you've got your SID on departure, and then there's, you know, probably a few waypoints before you hit the North Atlantic. And then you've got your North Atlantic crossing points. And then, you know, New York's a mess. So there's probably 270, 275 waypoints before you get to JFK. What's it look like from Cape Town to, is it just the Cape Town SID and then direct troll? More or less. So it is the Cape Town, <laughs> it is the Cape Town as SID. And as pilots, of course, we love the word direct. So normally you would, if you get a direct, you would accept it immediately. But 
for this flight, it is already filed more or less direct, but we also put specifically in our procedures that we do not accept direct routing because we want to be able to plot our points along the way. So if you accept a direct to uh, direct to troll, then you can't really refer back to the flight plan uh, as such. So Ah, interesting. So what happens is, I think there's just one or two waypoints out of Cape Town. Lovely airport, by the way, really fantastic people working there. And you take off and you just turn south and there's one waypoint. And before that waypoint, you call up uh, Johannesburg Oceanic and you connect to the CPDLC. And from that moment on, it's very similar to a North Atlantic flight with they mainly with, with CPDLC as a way to communicate with the control. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense that, you know, the with CPDLC being available, that's what you would use over whatever oceanic crossing you're making. So you're approaching Antarctica. At what point do you switch over to communicating with Troll directly? So the flight is about five hours. And as you fly in over the continent, you start doing the broadcast. It's a blind broadcast similar to what we use over Africa and some other parts of the world so that if there are other aircraft in the area, then they would know that you're around. Leaving the flight level is a free text message to Johannesburg saying, hello there, we're starting our descent now. There's very little traffic in the area, so they follow you. It is their airspace, but once you start descending, you're sort of on your own. And about 40 minutes prior to arrival, you can reach Troll Station. And there are two radios here. There's Troll Station and Troll Airfield. So the station is the polar station, and they have a much better antenna and much better range. They provide us with the weather, a latest weather update. And then as you get closer on the same frequency, you're now talking to a troll airfield, which is basically a walkie-talkie in a Toyota Hilux. <laughs> I actually have the picture of you landing on the runway. And in the foreground is the gentleman holding the walkie-talkie exactly. standing, yeah. standing next to the runway. We received some video from the Norwegian Polar Institute. And part of that video was the departure as well, where you're communicating with the, I'll call it the departure controller. But again, it's just him standing on next to the runway with the walkie-talkie. I found that amusing. Yeah, it's very rare. I mean, it's so different from anything else. That's uh, similar to what you would perhaps do if you fly a, a Cessna somewhere and land on a small airfield. But I think it's quite rare that you get... We don't get clear to land. They give us the runway is clear. But I think it's quite rare to get runway clear. You may land uh, in a 787 from a guy on a walkie-talkie. <laughs> exactly. What is the approach briefing like? What are the things that you're considering... I'm sure a lot of it's the same because the 787 is a 787 no matter where you're landing, but an ice runway is a bit different. So, so how does that approach briefing differ? From the start of the project, we wanted to make sure that everything that we do is as close as possible. Just like I say, it's a 787 and we want things to be, our procedures to be as close as possible to what we normally do. That was sort of the starting point. And we assumed that even though we keep everything as normal as possible, the fact that we're flying to Antarctica, there will be, still be items that are not normal. So one thing we did was we ensured that we had some sort of GPS approaches. And the Polar Institute have developed some basic approach procedures, some basic approaches into troll. And we had Jeppesen is our chart provider, and they created these tailor-made approach charts for us for runway 27 and runway 09 in troll. Those procedures were then also coded into our FMS. So just like an approach into, uh, you select the RNAV approach into JFK, 
you can do the same thing here. You just select the approach. And then, like I said, it's the briefing is, is very similar to a normal briefing. But of course, when you come to the threat and error part of things, where, where you try to identify the possible threats and, and how you're going to mitigate it, that's when things are, you realize that you're, you're flying to something that is not JFK. <laughs> There's a few differences, but what's it like landing on the ice runner? Is it any different than a normal landing? It's a little bit different. So there are no real edge lights and there's no approach lights and you're landing on a cleared strip on the ice. We, uh, in the weather forecast, we look for, apart from all the regular stuff with wind and, and cloud and visibility and such, they also report contrast and horizon. And horizon is important because with a, a poor horizon, when you get lower, the glacier and the sky sort of blur together. And it would be very difficult looking out in a flare, for example, to look out and see where the horizon is. So we want to see at least moderate to good horizon before we even attempt the approach and actually before we even decide to depart Cape Town. Contrast is another one. If you have a low cloud layer, an overcast, you don't really get any shadows. And then everything sort of blurs together a little bit. So that's different. The other thing that is, is quite different is that it's a very wide runway. They clear almost 100 meters or 90 meters. That means the perspective is quite different. Most pilots know that there is a difference landing on a standard runway. If, if there is a wider runway in the flare, your perspective is different. Same thing if you're landing on a more narrow runway, the perspective is different. So that is something to be aware of. It doesn't really make it more difficult, but it, it's something to be aware of before the landing. The landing itself very similar to a normal landing. The moment you touch down, it looks very smooth and the touchdown is very smooth. But the moment you're down, ice is, and especially ice on a glacier, is not as smooth as, as tarmac. So there is a bit of vibration after touchdown. You're in Antarctica with a 787 for the first time ever. Is it just, okay, now we turn off the plane or do you leave it on? Because you're not on the ground for all that long. I think you were, you were down there for just a few hours. So what was that procedure like? We spent a lot of time discussing this in risk assessments prior. What we did as pilots is just a small part, of course, ground ops and technical is a big part of this. And again, we wanted to keep everything as normal ops as possible. One of the items that were discussed in detail were the reliability of the APU. So fortunately, the 787, the, the APU on the 787 has a fantastic track record. I've flown this aircraft for 10 years now, and I don't think I've ever had an APU problem. But you don't want that APU problem to happen when you're down in Antarctica because you need the APU to start the engines. They have ground power units, but they aren't really strong enough for a 787. So we packed it off the runway, came to a parking, we shut down our engines, and we left the APU running. And the APU performed great, as expected. But we did have a spare kit with us. So we had two engineers. And those engineers, they had brought with them what we call a, a flyaway kit. And that flyaway kit had APU controllers and various APU spare parts in case there had been some issues with that APU. Interesting. And then you've unloaded using Volvo front end loader, which I absolutely find fascinating how you, you know, deal with cargo. Because that, that was one of the questions we got is like, how do you get the cargo off the plane? Because obviously they don't have cargo loaders or anything like that. And you just use a Volvo front end loader. So then you're all buttoned up. And what's the departure like? So just briefly on that front loader, because sure. it's, it's quite interesting. 
our head of ground ops, when he first heard of it, he was like, absolutely not. You're not taking that front loader next to my aircraft. <laughs> For good reason. There is there's quite a bit of risk sure. involved with that. But here is where the Polar Institute is so great. So we said... If we're going to offload heavy cargo, because we brought down a radar antenna, for example, that radar antenna, it was very heavy. It was uh, about 450 kilos, about 1,000 pounds. And in order to get it off, we needed to use the front loader. So in order for them to use it safely, they needed a, a carefully crafted procedure. And they also built a special platform that was uh, attached to that front loader. So at no point did the front loader actually sort of move into the aircraft they just parked it in front and they were able to roll off the the crate with that radar antenna and yeah it's that's a completely different story but it it was quite (laughs) fascinating as a pilot to see that part of the operation how detailed they had that procedure so then you've got the doors closed you're ready to start the engines how does that work is it any different than just okay it's time to go it was a little bit different we worked closely with boeing on this project and there are some minimum oil temperatures that you want to see before when you start up, the oil is cold. And then after it, it takes a few turns in the engine and, and it starts warming up. But they recommended a warm up of 18 minutes, which is something that we normally don't really do. And so we started our engines and we waited for, for 18 minutes. So we started taxing out after, after about 10 minutes. But in general, very much like a, a normal normal departure, you have to be careful when you taxi it's a little bit slippery but not too bad the the braking action on an ice runway surprisingly the way they prepare it is very similar to that of wet tarmac so you got braking action good almost that's fascinating i didn't think about this and because i've never taxied an airplane on ice but i guess it makes sense that the taxiing is a little bit slippery (laughs) yeah especially in turns Yeah. So your takeoff is normal. And then how do you get back to Cape Town? Are you, do you just kind of pop up on Johannesburg Oceanic and say, we're back? And they say, great. And then it's just a normal flight into Cape Town? More or less. Yeah. And and there's an interesting point here as well, which is also extremely rare for a 787, but quite normal if you fly a Cessna in the the backcountry. And that is after landing, we had to make sure that they closed our flight plan. And this is when you fly a Cessna, it's quite common. You land in a small field somewhere. If you've got flight following, you want to make sure that the flight plan is closed because that way they know you're safely on the ground. And that's the exact same thing we had here. We landed in Troll, and then we had to make sure that everyone knew that we had safely landed because there is no normal air traffic control in in Troll. And the same thing then goes on, on, on departure. We depart. And they activate the flight plan for us over the phone. The station calls to Johannesburg and they activate the flight plan. And the moment we're airborne, we connect back to CPDLC. And and if the CPDLC connects, that means that the flight plan has been activated. If it does not connect, it means that they're still working on activating the flight plan. And then at some point, you call up again to do a a radio check on HF. And from that moment on, it's it's like a, a normal arrival into Cape Town. Fascinating. I've really enjoyed learning about this because there's been some questions that I've had for quite some time just in general about flying to troll and then to be able to talk about those with the captain of the first 787 flight landing in Antarctica. That was very exciting for me. So Captain Olaf Lindstrom, who is the fleet chief pilot of North Atlantic Airways, commanded the first 787 flight to land in Antarctica and on any ice runway that we believe. So very, very good to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. So much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. 
Welcome back. Jason, I know you never ever listen to the podcast itself, but perhaps I can suggest you listen to this particular interview that our listeners just heard. Because I thought that it was absolutely fascinating and I thought that Olaf was very generous with both his time and his knowledge. So thank you to Ulla for that. And, and I hope everyone else enjoyed it. I mean, it answered a bunch of questions I had about like, how do you do this? I mean, because there are so many different things. The the funny thing is like, what are the alternate air forces? Like, well, we either go back or, or land where we were going. Those are your options. You get Those two. Those the alternates. Yeah. And, and hey, this is something I, I don't think Norwegian ever did. So that is just one more way. Norse is not Norwegian. Norse is not Norwegian. Getting better all the time. We've got some news that's worth sharing beyond what we've already talked about this week. Atlas Air has ordered two 777Fs. And the interesting part about that is not that they've ordered the aircraft, because sure, why not? But that they're going to have them delivered next year. And All of the delivery, not all of the deliveries, because obviously they just ordered two, but most of the deliveries of dedicated freighters that we've seen for upcoming, soon delivery slots have either been deferred or canceled outright. So it's interesting to see Atlas saying, no, we'll take two of those freighters and we want them by the second half of next year. All right. Not the greatest of circumstances in the rest of the, the freight industry right now, but if they want them, they can have them. I'm sure Boeing is thrilled. So- Two more things that I wanted to to flag this week for our listeners. Comac is going the Airbus route as far as its planes go. It's going to go take the the C919 and make a C918 and a 920. I don't know what they're going to call them yet, but they're going to shrink it and stretch it. And so you'll have the, the family, I suppose it's the Boeing route too with just different names. But yeah, so the narrow body competition kind of increases. I mean, China is a big operator. Chinese airlines are big operators of hot and or high aircraft. I mean, so shrinking the C919 and making that akin to a 737-700 or an A319, not a bad idea. Yeah. It would seem odd to shrink the C919 since the MAX 7 is the worst selling of the MAX family. Southwest really alone keeping that one alive. And then the A319neo, I think the only orders for those are either the private variant of it or Chinese airlines. I think Tibet Airlines might have a few of them. And I think one of the other mainline Chinese airlines also has the 319neo for those hot and high situations. So it makes sense. It's just an, an odd thing that I didn't really think you would shorten that particular airframe, lengthening it, yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. An A321 competitor makes all the sense in the world, but shrinking it, that's going to be a fun one. Yeah. So the shortened version will be called the plateau version, as we've alluded to in, in hot and high operations or, or mostly high altitude operations in Tibet. And it will seat 140 passengers in a two-class configuration. And then the stretched version will go 210 passengers in two-class. So think A321neo so Not quite an A321 since I think those go up to 240 two passengers or something like that. So getting close, but Airbus still holds that title of how many people can you cram into a single aisle aircraft? (laughs) We have yet to reach the limit. And then finally, something worth noting, but 
not really anything to act on at this point, just worth, I guess, celebrating. Virgin Atlantic operated the first 100% SAF transatlantic commercial airline flight yesterday, the 28th of November. So this was tanks full of sustainable aviation fuel across the ocean, first time ever. So good for them, you know, still building. I can't help but feel we're still in the like early. 1920s version of sustainable aviation fuel. We're just doing these things. Like they're important to prove that they can be done, but also we're just doing these things to still raise awareness and kind of use them as marketing and PR more so than. Yeah. And this wasn't a commercial flight. I don't believe anyone was on board. There were no commercial airline flight. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It is very much like, hey, we know this stuff works. It's going to be fine, but you got to put it through its paces and really, really cross your T's, dot your I's, and make sure there's there's nothing unexpected coming up with these with SAF. But yeah, there's still we've talked about this many times. Different types of SAF. So do they have to put every type of I guess final production version of SAF through? That's a great question. Yeah, we should talk to someone about that again. We should talk to somebody about that again. The best quote I saw was somebody on Twitter said, the entire Eastern seaboard is about to smell like a chip shop. So, Hmm. I mean, there's worse things, right? There are. There are worse things. Yeah. I mean, that's the question, I guess, is what does the exhaust of waste oil smell like? That is not a question I expected to hear today. I mean, I'm full of surprises right here. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Jason, what time is it where you are? 11.11 p.m. So it's time for you to get to bed. And I will let you go ahead and do that. We will not be back next week with a regular episode. We'll be back next week with an even more special episode. Since Jason's traveling now, he's not traveling to Stockholm, sadly, next week with me. But I will be in Stockholm. And next week's episode will be a very interesting one because I will be sitting down with Flight Radar 24 co-founders, Nikki Robertson and Ulla Blimberg. And we're going to chat about the origins of Flight Radar 24, where it's been and where we're headed. So I think that'll be a very interesting conversation. And I hope you tune in next week. This has been episode 244 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Urbanowitz. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 